Hello, and welcome to this season of The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert from National Geographic, and this season, we are diving deep with the artists who make our documentary films and series stand out amongst the rest. For today's episode, we are getting up close and personal with the production team behind Welcome to Earth. My guests are executive producer Jane Root and co-executive producer Graham Booth, who are going to share what it was like behind the scenes taking on one of the most epic projects of their careers. Jane and Graham, thank you both so much for joining me today. I really want to start by talking about the ambition of Welcome to Earth. And if you could talk a little bit about when you were thinking about this series, it is on such a grand scale. What was the motivation behind that? What were you hoping to accomplish? And what did it take to actually deliver that? Wow, yes, it feels big. Now we've done it. I think at the time, motivation was really about trying to show things in a new way. I think that's right, Graham, isn't it? That we wanted to, things that you might have felt that you'd seen in one way, suddenly giving a new perspective. I always remember you talking about the moment where we found out about the wildebeest smelling each other's hooves as they were trekking across the Serengeti. And that was like, wow, we've never heard that before. Was that a breakthrough moment for you? Yeah, I think it was. I think really what we were after sort of giving people a sense of awe and wonder about the earth again at a time when we probably need to be more connected to the earth than ever, when it needs us more than ever, we're probably as disconnected as we've ever been. So it was about how do we get people interested in the wonders of the earth and not only the things that they might know about, but all the wonders that we don't know about. The fact that there are just scientific boundaries everywhere frontiers that we've never explored. And I think that's what we were going after. I love that you say a sense of awe and wonder because it makes me think about, you know, each episode is sort of loosely themed around one of our senses, hearing, sight. Can you talk about the idea of putting the episodes together around that? Because to me, that was different and unique and really, really interesting. I think what we were after was As we went looking for stories, as Jane has already said, we found all these things that we didn't know about, even though we'd been working in science and natural history television for, you know, decades. It started to feel like it was almost like the Matrix. There was a world behind the world we knew. And how do you get at that? Well, the only way to get at that is through your senses. So we didn't want to make it so esoteric that people wouldn't be able to connect. We wanted to say, no, listen, if you were here in the right place with the right guide, you could see this or you could hear this or you could smell this. So that's how it started to come about. And then we thought, you know what, that's a really nice organizing principle. Why don't we make that the way that the episodes break down? And I think also one of the things that we discovered in the previous series, One Strange Rock, was how technology could get us to places that were amazing and things that you felt like you'd seen in one way that we could open them up, you know, so that you could experience them in a different way. That was also the place where we started from. One of the things I love about this series, too, is that I feel like it's a little bit of a genre busting series. I don't feel like you can classify it as natural history or science or a celebrity travelogue. It sort of is all of those and more. How would you all define this series? 
Well, that's good to hear you think that, because that's definitely what we went after. If we're trying to get everybody on the planet to connect with the world, you don't want to exclude anybody. So you don't want just a natural history audience. You don't want just a science audience. And we made a conscious choice with Will to go with somebody who had no experience of those worlds, who was literally probably the most famous and expensive every man you could ever find, <laughs> who would take us to places and just go, I'm there like you would be, going, I know nothing about this, but it's sort of blowing my mind. And I think, you know, we wanted adventure and we wanted science and we wanted natural history and we wanted a buddy movie with the explorers and we wanted, you know, it to look beautiful, but we didn't want any of those things to sort of take over. Let's talk for a minute about the locations from the Serengeti to the bottom of the ocean to inside an active volcano. I'm sure you had so many choices and so many ideas of where you wanted to film the series. How did you go about narrowing that down and actually deciding where you were going to film and where Will was going to go and the pieces you were going to do that didn't have Will but had some of the explorers? Well, it was a long process with a lot of very talented, intelligent people sort of working it out. But you say narrow, what's funny about it is we actually ended up doing 92 shoots in 34 countries on all seven continents. It was an enormous undertaking. We had four simple rules for how we chose a story. It was, had we ever heard it before? It had to get past that. Could you actually see the reveal on the screen. We didn't want, just want you to be talking about why this thing was important. We wanted to see something revelatory. We wanted to look magical and we needed to know that we could capture it. So those were the things. And as long as it satisfied those four things, then that was the way it got in, really. So, Jane, 92 shoots, 34 countries, all seven continents. Do you include the bottom of the ocean in that somewhere, too, or is that a bonus? That's an extra. That's an extra. <laughs> The scope and scale of the production alone took years. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it actually took to make this show? Well, you know, it takes a tribe and it really was a tribe of people. And at some points in time, we were filming in all those different continents simultaneously. That was the astonishing, mind-boggling thing. And it's like, oh, so-and-so is filming in Australia today. So-and-so's in Latin America. So-and-so's in Africa. So-and-so's in Norway. And that was phenomenal. And with some of the best people in the world who we were working with, and then working with a team of explorers. So it was like a, making a really intricate tapestry of fitting them all together. And now when I look at it, amazing that it feels like one thing. I think that's one of the things that was a worry it was like, would it feel like a compilation or could we actually weld it all together? And for me, that's, I think, one of the things that Graham has achieved in a really big way is the welding, to use an industrial metaphor, you know, <laughs> and you end up with something that you think, yeah, that works. That tells me all of these different elements about smell, for instance, or different elements about sound. and you effortlessly kind of skip across the world. I love that about the show. Graham, I imagine you in like this huge command center with like a big digital map where you're trying to keep track of crews are here and Will is here and the explorers are here. How did you go about organizing all of this massive production 
into one cohesive story. Yes, it was a big effort. I mean, there was a lot of people that helped. We were up to probably about 100 production staff at one time, which is enormous. As you know, it's bigger than most independent production companies. And then it was about, as always, it's about eyes on the prize. It's easy to get lost in the logistics and the travel and all these trips. But really, it's all about have we got this story? If we haven't got this story, have we got the next story that really tells the tale that we're trying to get at? So that was the thing. And you just had to be sort of focused and sort of dedicated to that idea. That's what took us through, I think. So I'd love to talk about the idea of Will as the guide or the host. And Obviously, Will has been in the news recently, but that's not the Will we're going to talk about. That's not what this show is about. We all knew a different Will. And I think what you said, Graham, is he was sort of the world's most recognizable everyman. And seeing these experiences through his eyes almost made you, like, the viewer at home feel like they were there. And talk a little bit about the thought behind that. And was that what you were trying to achieve? Will was perfect because he had next to no experience of the natural world. He'd had an urban upbringing. He lived in an urban environment. He's been famous since he was 17 or 18, you know, so he's lived quite a rarefied life. And he, despite being on location all around the world with the movies that he's made, he's never slept under canvas. He has never wandered around in the bush by himself or even with a guide. He has never done any of that stuff. Nature is a... It's a foreign land to him. So that made him perfect for us because, we, were, as I say, we're trying to get people to connect, people who never thought about nature. And so he worked very well. And, of course, you know, incredibly personable. He works very well with people. You know, he had a different sort of relationship with each of the explorers, which is something that we played on. I mean, the thing about him, and Jane can back this up, ever since we first met him, the one thing you would say about him is he is just endlessly curious. That's what we majored on. He's endlessly curious, but he's also, I think, one of his secret skills is despite being in incredible action movies, he's not afraid to be scared. And fear is the other side of awe and actually being kind of amazed and frightened. So at the volcano, he was both in awe of the fact that he was with a blind volcanologist who could talk to him about the sound of a volcano and also like, holy shit, I'm standing here and there's lava bombs going off around my head. That fear, you know, in Iceland with teeming frozen rivers, he wasn't afraid to be scared. And a lot of people from his world can't show it. They're too controlled. You talked about two of my favorite moments in the series, the volcano and the crevasses in Iceland. And my third one I would put on there is Will going to the bottom of the ocean when they turn the lights off and the ocean lights up with all the creatures that he sees. And I think that is one of the most authentic moments in the series. What does it take to convince the world's biggest movie star and a company owned by Disney that it's a good idea to take Will Smith to the bottom of the ocean inside an active volcano or rappelling down a crevasse in Iceland where if anyone fell, that would probably be the last action moment of their life? Well, 
with Will, the only thing that was ever hard was fitting into his schedule. He never said no. That was my experience, Graham. I don't know if it was yours. You were closer to it than me, but he was always seemed to be like, yes, please. How can I do it? When can I go? And when we presented him with ideas for a show, he was like a kid in a candy store, just wanting to do it. We spent quite a long time talking to risk analysis experts and talking to our partners, Secret Compass, who manage a lot of that for us. We kept everybody safe. And we were doing this in the middle of a world turned upside down by COVID. The volcano, we talked to Brendan McGinty, your cinematographer, about what it was like filming in that active volcano and how the gases were eating through wires and destroying camera frames. How do you compromise when you're on location like that for something you weren't quite expecting and still get everything you need from a production standpoint? Because you were there as well and I'm sure saw all of it. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, we try not to have any surprises. We scout everything, especially if it's going to be something that Will was going to do. Then we'd make sure that we weren't going to have unexpected surprises, although you can never count against them. The volcano was actually tougher than we thought in some ways, certainly when we, before we went out to scout it. We had a rope access guy with us who was ex-Special Forces, trained sniper, one of the best rope experts in the world. And he said it was the most extreme and forbidding environment he'd ever been in. Wow. Partly because of the smell and the explosions, obviously. But the main thing was the volcanic ash is like little shards of fiberglass and it's blowing around the entire time. So it's you've just got to keep it out of your eyes and your lungs and your nose. It was tricky. It was very tricky. But we made sure that we always have a big security detail, a big safety detail. We try to be as ambitious as we can be with these shoots, but it is only television at the end of the day. You know, well-being of people is much more important to us. So we, we push things as far as we safely can. Jane, you all put together this amazing behind-the-scenes piece about the shoot in Iceland. And the details that you all have to think about on these shoots to the point where when you're shooting in the middle of nowhere in Iceland, you're flying in restrooms for the crew to use. Can you talk a little bit about that and just how elaborate these production moments were? Well, it's like you're moving the biggest movie stars in the world to some of the most dangerous places in the world. And so either one would on its own be a big undertaking, but you really, really are bringing those two things together. And it's not that Will was demanding in terms of things, but like I say, the only thing that Will didn't have more of was time. You can't have someone like him standing around waiting while you set up the next shot. So you have to really, really plan. And I think that's one of the things that Graham and his team did amazingly well. And then once you have a lot of big team, you've got to feed people. You've got to give them places to go into the bathroom. You've got to have incredible care. These are some of the world's most special and unique environments. And you can't come in with big feet and be like, oh, weird television. We're going to just stamp all over your unique place. You've really got to take care with all of that. I think National Geographic would not want us to do anything else with that. Yes, we very much appreciate that (laughs) and support that. Graham, the craft of this project is mind-blowing. The cinematography, the sound, 
once you got back from the shoots, the editing, the music. Talk a little bit about the incredible team you put together to make this series. It was a really nice opportunity for me. I have quite a checkered background. I started in commercials, and then I did music promos, then I did a little bit of drama, then I went into documentary, then I was a natural historian for a while, and then I went into science TV and adventure TV. And this is the first project where I was able to pull expertise from all of those areas and assemble crews that had worked in all those different things. So I'd be going... You know, these people are the best at doing car-to-car shots. They work in movies. I'm going to get them. These are the best science people. These are the best natural historians. These are the people that can do commercials, that can make it look glossy. Let's assemble a team out of all those people. We wanted it to look cinematic. We wanted it to feel real and not constructed, which it wasn't. I mean, our whole modus operandi, really, our whole way of working was to say... Can we let Will just walk into this and experience it? We don't want to be shouting cut. We don't want to be getting him to do things twice. We just want him to experience it. But can we do that and make it look like cinema and make it sound like cinema? That was the trick. And I think for the most part, we pulled that off. Jane, I also want to ask you about Darren Aronofsky and Protozoa Pictures, your partner on this project. What does Darren's cinematic experience and background bring to a show like this? Well, Darren has a different experience to the rest of us working on the show, and he's mainly worked it scripted. And so that is a surprising and different way of coming at it. I remember one of our very first meetings with him, he was talking about, so what's the color palette? And I've never really come across anybody in a non-scripted world talk about a color palette. That's something that Absolutely, people talk about in the scripted world, but applying some of those ideas to what we were doing and pushing us in those ways. It is a a sense that that's how you move outside a single zone, is to get other people to say, from my world, this is how we'd look at it. Graham, you might have some more specific ideas about how that actually worked when you were with him. Well, one of the other things I guess we talked about with Darren was that he wanted the pictures to be bigger than Will. So generally, if you had a movie star of his standing, you'd just be shooting close-ups as much as you could because you wanted to make sure that you got maximum value out of your the talent. But he was very much that the world was more impressive, that Will was just a tiny figure experiencing this thing. That informed quite a lot of the way we shot as well. We shot wider than we normally would and definitely made a star of the environment. So the other big personalities in the series are the explorers, who I think add so much background and context and expertise to the moments that they're in. Talk about how that idea came about and the role that they played in the series. Well, the first series that we did like this, One Strange Rock, we had astronauts who were looking at the world from space and talking about their experience. And the astronauts that we chose were people with really emotional as well as scientific connections to what was happening in Earth. And here we wanted to have people who had really, really looked at things in a different way, but were also really ready to live it. I think that's the thing about all of our explorers, that they bring a unique 
personal kind of feeling to it in a way. And I think that was really important. Eric, the astounding volcanologist and explorer, the fact that he lived his world through sound. When we discovered him, that was a major breakthrough because we were like, we can actually find someone who is bringing such a different perspective. And Will was kind of blown away by him. The National Geographic Explorers and what the society does with them, they're a kind of incredible secret. We just love working with them. We'll love them. We all love them. We're working with some of them again now on other projects. They really are a special, special group. It took quite a lot of finding. We considered about 3,000 people and spoke to about 50 to narrow it down to those final six. What drew you to those six? What was it about them that made them the right fit for this show? We didn't want anybody who fitted into the sort of old-fashioned cliches of explorers. We didn't want anybody who looked like Indiana Jones or had a big white beard and, you know. We wanted people that were from very diverse backgrounds, ethnically, culturally, physically, who were just driven to explore by a love of nature and the planet. The more different their experiences were, the more different the reasons that they did it, the better it was for us. We wanted to give a really broad cross-section because, if anything, we want people to go, you know what, we should all explore. It might only be exploring around your neighbourhood. Everybody can be an explorer. It's good to explore. So we wanted people that felt inclusive. The series has a lot of macro, but also a lot of micro. And even the technology it took to film those different things. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there was there's quite a lot of things in the show where technology hadn't quite caught up with us. And we were having to push it forward through R&D. Some of that was in macro. I mean, the slime mold, for instance, was a good example of that where actually the only way to do the time-lapse of the slime mould was to take over a million still images. Wow. And then write a software programme that could make them work together because we had to focus stack them. The depth of field was so shallow that we had to stack plates behind each other. So that was incredibly difficult. But even like the submarine, the submersible, we put cameras in there and our mini cams guy was having to write code while we were out there to change the amount of power and heat that they drew because the submersible was so precise. It need, the environment there needed to be so precise. So there was that. The Exploding Hammers was another one that comes to mind where we had to find a camera that could record fast enough to show slow motion of a sound wave coming off an explosion, but we had to then get that camera onto a drone. That was about six months R&D to actually get that to work. I also have to say, when we were talking to Brendan, he told me when you guys were filming at the volcano that no drones were destroyed in the filming of the volcano, which is very impressive. So congratulations <laughs> on that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and talk a little bit about, Jane had mentioned this, Graham, the color palette of the series, because the colors are so rich and so vibrant. And I'm sure that's a process that you have to think about when you're making the show. To be honest, it was more about when we shot, the times of day we shot, because we made a decision very early on that we weren't going to stylize anything. There's no point trying to convince people that the world is wonderful and then you have to fake it all to make it look wonderful. <laughs> it was more about 
just making sure we had the best possible cameras, the best possible mics, and we were shooting at the right times. And we'd thought about what we were going to do with it. So it was more about that. I guess in terms of the colour palette played a little bit, but it's quite subtle. It was more about giving the explorers a slightly different feel. So the colour palette between the different shows is very subtly different. I'd also love to get your thoughts on my friend Daniel Pemberton and his incredible score. What did that bring to the series? I worked with him before on One Strange Rock. Uh, That was a fantastic experience. I think he felt even more liberated on this one. He felt like he could be more experimental. He thought he could play on the fact that we were trying to show and hear and smell things that people didn't normally experience. And he wanted to try and mirror that in his instrumentation and the way he put the score together, which he succeeded in admirably, I thought. It's a fabulous score, and he's a very interesting composer in that all the tracks he supplies are very multi-layered, so there might be like 40 tracks underneath it, and there's all sorts of little details in there, so you can remix that stuff, which he would do for us, to bring out different elements you can use the same cue two or three times and people would not even recognize it as the same cue because it's so rich the depth of things in there and i mean he's a fantastic composer who as you know does a lot of really great work in a lot of very different styles but i think he felt in fact i spoke to him just the other week he was coming back from la where he'd been conducting a welcome to earth suite and he was saying he felt like he was really liberated with this. He really could push the boat out. So he could really go into areas that he's not normally allowed to go into. I also think there's moments where in maybe a more traditional natural history series, in that moment, you would normally have a loud orchestral moment and you all chose quiet or silence, which to me was part of the score. Talk about that a little bit. The idea that it's a non-traditional natural history series and it is pushing the boundaries, I think is just a great description of the show as a whole, which on so many different levels, that's what it is. It's sort of ironic, Chris, that we made a show about colour, which has a period of absolute darkness in it, and we made a show about sound, which has a period of absolute silence in it. I guess what we wanted was we didn't want the filmmaking to get in the way of the experience. We only wanted it to showcase the experience. So if it was about hearing the sounds of the places, then we couldn't have some bombastic orchestral score that just drowned that whole thing out. You needed to be able to hear it as well. And similarly with the visuals, sometimes the visuals needed to just sort of stand on their own. So what Daniel did really well was counterpoint and showcase those moments. I realize this is probably like asking you to pick your favorite child, but is there a moment of the series, Jane, that is your favorite? I think I love the moment in the submersible where the lights are turned off. And I think that sense of you've seen Will looking so scared and it feels so quiet and dark And then you turn the lights on and there's suddenly this astounding world around you. I think that's a metaphor for the show as a whole, which is, you know, like, open your eyes. Wow, look what there is. I think that, for me, has to be the one. And Graham? 
That's hard to beat, I must say. The moment you discover Eric is blind, probably, is another moment that I think is really strong. Although there's there's one subtle one which would be nobody else's favourite, but he's always mine, which is where he's talking to the other volcanologist on the volcano. And the scene is practically all about what it is they're going to do. But it's hard for the audience not to just be looking at Will thinking, he does not want to do this at all. (laughs) (laughs) And Graham, in all the places you went, what was the greatest challenge you encountered? Well, it's a boring answer, but weather is always the problem. That's always the thing that you're up against. Other than that, it all went pretty smoothly considering how many once-in-a-lifetime moments we were actually going through. I mean, you know, more people have been to space and have been down to the bottom of the ocean in that depth. So for us to accomplish that was incredible, especially on our first shoot with Will, that was. And into a live volcano catch a wildebeest crossing. I mean, that I filmed a wildebeest crossing three times before when I was working in the BBC Natural History Unit, and it's never taken me less than 10 days to get it, and we had two. And I was just saying, the chances of this are so slim. We did everything we could to make sure it happened, but it was a bit of luck that we got it. All those things are incredible when you're experiencing them, I think. I think you both did a great job of talking about the awe and the wonder. You know, obviously, this wasn't a climate change series, but you can't help but be struck by the beauty of our planet. I'm curious, you all are so experienced in this field, but did this series in particular have a personal impact on you or an impact on the way you think about our world? I mean, the person who I worked with at the BBC, David Attenborough, he used to talk about before you can save the world first, you have to fall in love with it. And that's been a mantra of mine for a really long time. I think that's really true. When you see things like that, it moves you. I tell you, one of the surprising things I found astonishing is the micro photography, which is the tiny, tiny things. And I think the huge things, volcanoes and so on, the awe and splendor of them is obvious. The tiny things, you kind of can pass them by. I always have a special fondness, a special fondness for the very, very small and the camera work that shows that off. And Graham? For me, I just hope that people are falling in love with the world. I mean, one of the things that sort of inspired me to make it was I'd read this terrible fact that two-thirds of British schoolchildren spent less time outside than the average British prisoner. And I was just so appalled by the idea of that. And I think if we can get people inspired to go out and explore and look at nature and try and see these things, try and see the micro world and the macro world and these amazing phenomena for themselves, then then that's where we've succeeded. So I'm going to end by asking if you all could describe this show this series in one sentence, how would you describe it? It's a love letter to the earth, I think. It's showing the secret ways that the planet works that we're not aware of. And Jane? I think it has to be about a directive to open your eyes and look around you and not be too sophisticated just to say, wow. I think that's what it's telling me. Well, I think you both did an incredible job with the team of hundreds to put a lot of wow moments 
in this series. I've been doing this a long time as well, and there were so many wow moments for me. So I just want to thank you both for taking the time today, and thank you so much for Welcome to Earth. Thank you, Chris. Thank you to National Geographic and to you. For more information on Welcome to Earth, please visit natgeotv.com backslash FYC. I'm Chris Albert, and this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. That's a wrap. The making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Chris Albert, Raquel Bravo, and Jennifer Driscoll. Hosted by Chris Albert. Written and produced by Dave Beezing, Angela Pirelli, and Thomas Green. Michelle Vensel, production coordinator. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.